Hello and welcome to Beneath the Beerbub, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. My name is Gordon Buchanan and I've spent more than 30 years seeking out stories from our wild world in my career as a wildlife filmmaker. Right now, as I speak, up to one-eighth of the world's species are at risk of extinction and the pressures of human activity and climate change are pushing habitats and ecosystems to breaking point. Now, more than ever, we're under pressure to act to conserve species that will otherwise be lost forever. International policies and regulations may be introduced with the best intentions, but implementing conservation on the ground in real communities is a whole different story. And the voices of those people historically have been marginalised. The livelihoods and rights of communities and indigenous people worldwide can at times lie in direct conflict with Global North conservation policies, which in some cases call into questions their right to use the land and resources that they've relied on for generations. And in spite of the data, in spite of the challenges, in this series I want to bring you stories of hope and radical ideas for solving some of these critical problems before it's too late. If, like me, you live in the UK or Europe, you might be surprised to learn that these world-changing wildlife conservation actions aren't all on a global scale either. We may hear about pledges to increase or protect environments and biodiversity at climate conferences and international committees, but when it comes down to it, it all relies on actions taken by the people and communities who every day live hand in hand, side by side, with wildlife, with birds, with plants, insects, fish, or in the case of our guests, lions, elephants, rhinos, and wild dogs. So where are the voices of these communities? This podcast will introduce you to the people who are living and working on the front lines of conservation and allow you to glimpse into the complicated, often difficult realities of sharing space, sharing lives with wildlife. Please listen with an open mind and join us as we talk conservation beneath the beerbub. One of the things that continues to fascinate me are the narratives we share around wildlife and our relationship with the natural world. For the majority of us, the idea of sharing space with animals that have the potential to inflict deadly harm on us is far beyond our frame of reference and it's not something we've had to concern ourselves with for generations. But this is the lived experience of millions of people across rural Africa right now. The reality of coexisting with potentially dangerous animals is never as simple as many in the Western world would assume. So how would you respond to an elephant in your backyard or maybe a lion on the road to school? Well, unsurprisingly, this question is fundamental to how successful conservation can be where people and wildlife collide. Understanding the nuanced and complex nature of these relationships is absolutely vital for conservation, and we will be exploring some of these stories in the podcast. Successful conservation is just as much about people as it is about lions, elephants and rhinos. Rights-based and community-driven initiatives have been incredibly successful, but are seldom recognised or championed in Western conservation narratives. 
incentivizing and empowering the people who bear the cost of protecting Africa's last great wildernesses is increasingly at the very heart of conservation. Strategies that reflect this are more important now than ever before. And that's why I want to start today by introducing the concept of CBNRM. Have you heard of it? Well, until recently, I hadn't. It stands for Community-Based Natural Resource Management. For me, it took a little while to sink in, so I'm going to say it again. Community-Based Natural Resource Management. As the name suggests, it's all about helping communities develop models to sustainably utilise their natural resources, decide how best to manage wildlife, and perhaps most importantly, recognise their vast cultural knowledge and experience, which has long been neglected. Today's guest is a world-renowned expert in the CBNRM approach, and she has been instrumental in a remarkable conservation success story. Maxi Pia Lewis is director of NAXO, the Namibia Association of CBNRM support organizations. She has had more than 22 years experience working in the conservation space. She cares as deeply about people as she does wildlife, and that is fundamental to the incredibly important work that she does. Hello, Maxi. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Gordon. Maxi, for anyone that's not heard of Community-Based Natural Resource Management or CBNRM, what is this and where did it come from? So CBNRM was a blessing in 1990 when we got our independence because it actually meant that it was freedom in terms of changing our policies. And so we changed one of our policies to allow communities to start being involved in their own natural resource management and also being part of an industry such as tourism where they can actually derive some benefits. So we went across all the Southern African countries, look at what they're doing. Botswana mainly, Zimbabwe had a program called the Campfire Program and they still continue to have that program. We look at what is the pros and cons and what is the lessons learned from them. And when we created our own CBNRM, trying to address issues and gaps that we had at the time, and a lot of them had to do with rights. So it's addressing issues about rights over your natural resources, issues around communities to take part in uh, economic uh, activities such as tourism. So those are some of the activities then that describe what CBNRM is for us in Namibia is just making sure that communities are involved in conservation activities. And as they are involved in conservation activities, they also derive benefits from those conservation activities. And in Namibia, it can be, you know, consumptive and non-consumptive. So just to describe CBNRM, more rights orientated in terms of natural resources, but also benefits and livelihoods being addressed as part of that. And prior to independence in 1990, what, what was the mood on the ground in rural communities when it came to resource management? Did people feel completely disempowered and it was for decisions to be made by someone else? Yes, uh, that's what the system was all about. It was a top-down system where decisions will be made mainly from South Africa because we were not regarded as a country, we were regarded as a province for South Africa at the time. So everything will be coming from government. It will be imposed then on people. But, you know, communities and people felt helpless because if you had, for instance, just to give you an example, wildlife in your area, 
and you could not make use of the wildlife, it, it doesn't matter in what way, people will rather go for poaching because, you know, that was for them to have something to eat or to feed their families at the time. There was a lot of decimation of wildlife around that time, but also of just people chopping trees have no regard because if you don't own it and you don't make any use of it, what's the use of looking after it? So that was the reason why people did not take part in anything because they had no rights in taking part. So for me, that is the mood I describe, helplessness, no regard for anything because you did not own it and you did not have the right to it. So that's what I will describe the mood was. And I've read that the communities nowadays, they want to be part of conservation. So when we started this program in 1996, this is when the first policy started changing. But there was a lot of studies that we went around and, and we did these studies. Was first, we did not want to impose anything like the previous government. First was to go around and do some studies. And these studies was studies that involved the social aspects, but also looking scientifically for instance, we had to return some wildlife in areas where it was completely decimated. And based on these studies, we make sure there was engagement, but the communities participated as part of a lot of these studies. And based on the outcome of the studies, that informed policy and that policy then is the one that allowed them now to be part of what we call our CBNRM program that allowed our first four conservancies to be registered legally or cassetted, as we say in Namibia, for them to legally now being engaged in managing their resources. So that's how the whole situation started. So we first started to pilot in different regions. Uh, Goron, you were here, you could see how contrasting this country is. So we had to pilot to see in which area we will implement what when it comes to certain conservation activities. That's a good point. I've been to Namibia a couple of times and it is a phenomenally beautiful country. I would hope that most people listening will have heard of Namibia, but can you describe the landscape the habitats of Namibia, but also the human landscape. Out with the cities, how are the populations made up? It is around 840,000 square kilometres. It's, it's quite a huge country, a huge landscape. But the landscape is also very much diverse and very contrasting. So in the northwest of the country, that's when we have the Namib Desert and people might have heard about the skeleton coast. So we have the Atlantic Ocean. But you know, you don't have a lot of people. There's not much human people living around there. There's a couple of communities living there. Then you go up to the north central of the country, very savannah, forests orientated, but where the majority of the population live. We are around 2.4 million people now in the country of 840 square kilometers, and the majority of that population live in the north and the northeast of the country. So the most northeast of the country, this is where you find a bit more forested according to our standards. People coming from West or East Africa, they think that is nothing when you compare it to a forest, but for us that is forest. And then in the south, totally different. That's where you have the Kalahari Desert. We share that with Botswana, and that is also very few communities living there. 
And then we have actually towns. We have like 14 political regions. And in 13 of those political regions, we have major towns. Not big, big ones, but it's our towns. So Venduk is the capital city. And then we have two major towns on the coast. In the north, there's several bigger towns. And in the south, one or two bigger towns. So in terms of infrastructure and going around, very good roads. It doesn't matter whether it's a tire road or a dirt road, as we call them. It, you can access Namibia from anywhere, from the desert to the central, from the northeast, everywhere. So access is actually very easy. But it's a very dry country. We don't have much big rivers inland. We have rivers that we call infeveral rivers. They don't have water. They just have water when it rains. It's very strange for people. Our major rivers are on the uh, borders with other countries. You did a very good job describing Namibia as I know it. I was kind of almost closing my eyes and picturing those dust roads and picturing windhooks. So you took, you took me back to Namibia there in your description. It's a, a vast country not massively populated. So it sounds like there's a lot of space for wildlife and, and wild animals. Is that the case? We are very agricultural driven people, whether you are on a communal land, we depend on agriculture, whether it's crop or livestock, we do depend and, and depend where you are in the northeast where there is a bit more water and resources. This is where people do a lot of crop farming. In the northwest, people do more livestock, cattle and, and small livestock. But also a lot of wildlife. <laughs> so it depends where you are. And that is also because of the open landscapes. When you are in the Northwest, it's easy because elephants need range, lions need range, leopards, you know, all these big mamas need the range. And uh, we provide those ranges, especially in the Northeast and the Northwest of the country. So yes, open lands actually provide a lot of that space for wildlife and livestock to be able to live a very balanced land use. Remember, the country is also fairly very, very dry. I'm just going to describe, obviously, the listeners to the podcast won't see what I can see, is the, the photo gallery behind you. How many photos? One, two, three, four. There's about 10. Most of them are people. And there's a few wildlife and landscape shots. It's a gallery depicting people and a little bit of nature. Is conservation, is it a people centered job in your case? Are you a people person or are you a wildlife person? I will say both. <laughs> you know, yes, because the, the, the work that I do, but I also think my personality is easily, I can easily connect with people. That's just my personality, but also it makes my job easier to connect with people and connect those people with nature. And I think that was my job when I started because I, I studied tourism and tourism is that you, you, you travel, you see the world. And I, that in, in, in the country, I had an opportunity to do that as a very young person working in areas where I could connect with people and at the same time connect with wildlife. And that brings me together. And, and for me, it's difficult because I, I love both. Nature is what I love and I also like people. I think in kind of the global north, people kind of remove themselves from nature. And I'm sort of always saying that we are, you know, we came from nature. We're part of it. It's just that we have a, a broken relationship with the natural world. And I think sort of certainly having traveled a, a fair amount around the world, a lot in Africa, you see that there are people that sort of wildlife is, is part of their life. It's not something 
other. It is just part of the existence. So how did you come to work in this field? I'm interested in your story. I was born in Ventuk, which is not at the time when I was growing up. And I grew up not knowing much about wildlife because it was in a town. The only thing that I remember I was having around was our dog. <laughs> and then that was the pet that we, and we used to think that is wildlife. And then occasionally I had a grandfather who was managing a farm on behalf of a, a white farmer because he was working for these white farmers during apartheid. And during holidays, I would be traveling there as a child. And one of the things I was very amazed by the openness on that farm when I go there for holidays and he was a farm manager and how he managed the farm. He was a very sustainable person because he believed in managing wildlife. At the same time, we need to, he was looking after his, his livestock and then he has his chickens. So he had everything around that makes a farm. And it was for us, I think it's the issue of being in town, exposed us to town life. At the same time, we could come back to the farm and still see the realities that what a farm is all about. And that was my first exposure. So when I finished school, I decided first that I wanted to work in agriculture. And then I realized, no, that is not my thing. And then I got exposed to traveling a little bit around. I went to a national park, Tosha, which is our national park here. And I was very amazed to see an elephant for the first time. And I think that's what touched me. And I said, yes, that's what I want to do. I really want to travel like these people when I want. They have money because there was a lot of tourists in the park. And then one day I also want to work with these communities on the other side of the park that I felt had nothing to do with the park because they were not allowed to be part of the park. So this is how my interest then came. And, and I got a bursary then to study in Australia. And in Australia, I got to learn more about how Aborigines were living in a park called the Kagadu National Park, which is in the Northern Territory, and how the Australian government was managing some mining contracts and having these communities benefiting from some of these mining contracts. So for me, it actually started trickling the thing of all the communities outside the park. They can get involved in, in tourism and conservation. So this is actually what triggered uh, my mind. But I think also as a child, I just wanted to travel. When I see a flight, when I see anything in the air, I said, I want to go there. I want to go and experience that. So that is also what, what triggered me. And then when I finished my studies, I came back to Namibia. And then that was at the time when they were changing a lot of the policies around involving communities in 1996. And so one of my colleagues asked me to go and be a translator because I'm very multilingual and go to the northwest of Namibia to go as a translator. And I thought, yeah, I didn't have money. This is a good job. Let me go. And when I got there, I was very amazed how rich people's ideas were on the ground, their knowledge with wildlife and some of the strategies they had in terms of going further. And because I could speak English, they said, okay, we want you now to, to get our message across in Ventuk which is probably around 700, 800 kilometers from where they always had to travel to come and negotiate things. We want you to become a leader and, and get our voice across to the government people, the people that make decisions because we are very far removed from there. And this is when I started towing with the idea of, oh, we need to get formalized. We need to get an association. And a couple of us with some community leaders then at the time decided we are going to form an organization that will allow for communities to get involved in ecotourism. 
but we have to work on our own issues, getting their voices yet, getting them involved. But also my previous life before, when I was a student, I was an activist. So I always, anything that has to do with rights and a voice, I was always there. So when I got into this space, it was easy for me to just go on there and be that advocate for them. So I think this is how my life then started getting involved in this program. And so when that organization, I worked for that organization for nine years, we built campsites, we built lodges for communities that were income. And then I think I thought, yeah, I have lost my, <laughs> I have to do something else. Uh, so I, I then uh, got a job to work in the current organization that I work with, but exactly the same type of landscape, but a little more to the conservation side. So this is how I got involved in conservation and tourism both. And that makes me happy because I cover both. Thank you, Maxi. We'll be back with you again shortly. Now, though, I want to look at one of the ecotourism schemes in a little more detail. I'm joined by Lorna Dax, and Lorna is the former manager of the Kwadihuas Conservancy in northwest Namibia, now working at the Save the Rhino Trust. Lorna, hello, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Gordon. Lorna, can you tell me about the problems the community there faced with conservation before projects were put in place? Uh, when conservation was introduced to the communities, our conservancy was able to set up two lodges. Uh, we own two lodges and a campsite. And I would say before conservation or before conservancies, unemployment within the conservancy was very high. As you know, we are living in rural areas and employment opportunities were very scarce. So when the lodges opened, I am glad to say that around 85% of the people that are currently working at the two lodges and the campsite are mm. local people that are actually from the communities. And also the conservancy itself employs people to work as community game guards or what we call wow. them as environmental shepherds that would look after the wildlife and do the monitoring activities. Now that sounds fantastic. And I suppose when you think setting up lodges, you're not just talking about the staff to run those lodges, you're talking about guides, drivers, handicrafts, the, the revenue that can be brought into these rural communities that hopefully will stay in those communities and not disappear into the ether. The people that are employed at the lodges are local people. And the agreement that we have is that whenever there is a vacancy at one of the lodges, the people that would get priority are people from within the conservancy area. So only if there are no skills or experienced people for the specific position, then people from outside would be given an opportunity to come and work at the lodges as well. And sort of prior to that, what was rural life like? Were these people involved in agriculture? The people within the conservancy boundary currently, before conservancies were introduced and currently they are mostly small stock farmers. They depend on livestock. So if they are not employed at the lodges or some of the schools, 85% or 90% of them still depends on livestock farming, which is currently also being challenged. Was there any resistance or concerns when you set up these projects? Our lodges that Quadinghouse Conservancy own has a totally different arrangement. It's not a normal JV arrangement where an investor would come in with money, set up the infrastructure, and then hire people from the area or give back to the community. 
So uh, from the get-go, uh, the community members were really looking forward and optimistic to have a lodge of their own within the conservancy. Mm-hmm. And they were fully supporting the idea of setting up lodges within the conservancy, but uh, with them being 100% owners of the establishments. There's obviously a lot of wildlife in Namibia that there's not much conflict with, but there are some of those key species that sort of lead to conflict, animals that are potentially dangerous. With sort of local communities being involved in tourism, has that changed the relationship with species like elephants? The relationship has changed, I would say, in a very great way, because uh, communities have seen the benefit that having an elephant within the farms is giving them. And also having a rhino within the conservancy has its benefits as well. As I said before, a lot of people are employed at the lodges. And if it weren't for that elephant or the rhino, say, for instance, the rhino trackers or the guides would not have any jobs to do. So the communities are still in full support of conservation and they are still willing to coexist with wildlife. So for you and your line of work, what are your hopes for the future moving forward? Is there improvements you can make or is it about actually kind of extending this to involve other communities with a a similar scheme? You know, COVID taught us a lesson. And as conservancies, we were mostly dependent on tourism and conservation hunting. So my hopes for the future is that we focus on being prepared if we are faced with other natural disasters or other pandemics again. So I would like to see conservancies being more sustainable and also continue to see policies that are already there to support our program and support what we do as local communities within our conservancies. I think when it comes to the pandemic, it kind of threw the world off of its axis and I think it just affected everyone's lives in so many different ways all around the world and I'm just hoping that it seems at the moment things are getting back to normal and I think especially for Namibia other countries that are relying on tourism I hope that everything bounces back and I'd like to wish you all the very best for the future. Thank you so much Gordon. Okay we're back with Maxi. So for you working in wildlife conservation in Namibia. What are the current challenges? Before I get to the challenges, maybe just to mention a couple of things that I have seen changing in the years that I've been part of the program was that when I started with the program, there was very little wildlife on most of the escarpment. As I said to you, a lot of it was decimated by the war, but also by poaching by the people themselves. And here, as I work on this landscape, I see wildlife coming back. And then I start asking myself, how did this happen? That happens because communities were really treating wildlife with respect in terms of not poaching anymore, instead of hunting when they should be and when there's enough for them to do so. That is one of the, just the whole management aspect and not poaching anymore brought it back. The other one was just the landscape itself, where um, the range land itself started changing because people were not just chopping trees anymore. So things came back. But also for me, the biggest one was the people one, where people were organized in forms of governance, where they started managing things. They didn't have that before. 
independence. They were just, everybody was all over the place. There was a lot of tribal infighting. And now they have organized themselves. They go to meetings, they sit underneath a tree, there's negotiations, there's elections. So all these normal systems that we take for granted in the West became something that I have seen over my years working there. And then livelihoods, income, people making, getting income from tourism, getting income from products they sell. So it makes so much a difference in people's livelihoods on top of maybe some livestock or crop farming that they have. Just to have cash and having a cash economy going around there made a lot of difference in their lives. Yes, let's get to the challenges. What has been the challenges? And some of the challenges are also challenges that came because of their successes and their successes has been too much wildlife, too much predators that now started becoming a problem. Um, and so it caused human wildlife conflict in the areas. And that was one of the biggest problems. And when you sit underneath a tree and you talk to them and you say, yeah, but you remember you wanted <laughs> to be part of this program and now we have too much. Yeah. Do you still want this wildlife and these predators on your landscape? And they will say yes, but on our terms and how we manage it. And I do agree with them around that. The other one, I have also seen drought. The climate has changed. I have seen that with my own eyes uh, over time. It's not something I read in a book. I have seen how it uh, became more drier, more hotter. We had a drought maybe in some areas for more than 12 years, some of them eight years. And you just, like I was traveling last two years, I couldn't see livestock. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't see wildlife. They all disappeared. And so the, the drought has also considerably changed a lot um, around that. The other one is what we are dealing with now, the pandemic, where it was very distracting for, for all Namibians. You have all this space and openness and you were in a lockdown. It, you couldn't do anything mentally. It was very exhausting. And I think it really had an impact on all of us and, and especially not just on us, but mostly the youth, because it was very difficult for them. Maybe also a bit of poaching coming back during that time, but not so much. We were very lucky. We did not have much poaching in terms of rhino or elephant at the time. But then maybe planes game, kudu and so forth. People were hungry and people would go for, for poaching. So I think that the, for me, the pandemic was the worst that I've seen as to how people lost income and their livelihoods, how people mentally were lost. We were completely lost. You did not know who you are, where you're going, what is happening, you know. So, yeah, it, it's now coming back, but yeah, we were completely lost. But the poaching issue, that's something that's happened in the COVID years in other countries, in Kenya, in Zimbabwe and Botswana. And I think when the pandemic hit, I think everybody kind of just sort of were sucked into their own world and everybody was sort of thinking from a kind of very personal perspective. And it wasn't until a couple of months into the pandemic and I spoke to a friend that lives in Kenya and she was saying this is just such bad news for economies in Africa that are reliant on tourism. So is that something, have you seen tourism sort of starting to bounce back in Namibia? I just came from the fields on Friday and I went to the northwest where the situation was really, really bad. And I must tell you, we had really good rains in the past three months. It's amazing what can happen in three months in this country. 
wildlife is back and it's starting. Not all of it. I have not seen a lot of the wildlife that I normally see, but it is so green. People's moods are changing. There is water, and I'm sure where there is water, there will be at least improvement in people that can do their crop. I mean, one of the most devastating part was when you talk to a family and they say, you know, I have not even fed my family today because there's nothing to feed them. So those were very devastating and continue to be devastating moments because it will take a while for people to be able to grow crops for wildlife to come back. And this is Namibia. You never know whether in the next couple of months and years we are going to have rain again. But in terms of the rains, things have really changed. And Maybe another six weeks or so, we might even see better wildlife returning. Okay, I'm talking from a wildlife point of view because it's easy for wildlife to come back. It's not easy for livestock and people have lost all of their livestock and especially the indigenous communities. We have indigenous communities in this in this country that live on livestock. They are just, you know, they depend on it. And at the moment they have nothing. And, and I that will take time. Because they are pastoralists, and that is the ones that uh, we think we need to probably rethink how we are going to address a lot of these issues. For me, what is important now is to feed people. There should be some food security at the moment. And once people are fed, they can look after the environment. They can look after wildlife. They can look after wild stock. If people are hungry, always scared that they might go back to poaching. They might go back before independence because. We all have to live. We all have to feed our children. If we can't get to feed our families, there is vulnerability, and that vulnerability can lead to other things that we don't want. And that is my my biggest concern at the moment. One word that you've mentioned a lot is change. And I was listening to a talk that you gave, and you said that Namibians have this ability to cope with change. Yes, because <laughs> I remember during the drought when I drive with colleagues from outside, and I'm talking about colleagues from the West, they look at it and say, how can you survive in this country? As beautiful as it is, you need to eat. <laughs> and I said, you know, we are used to this. We come from wars that we survived. You know, we had the big HIV AIDS situation. We survived it. So the issue of resilience against certain things that we have gone through uh, have made us very strong people. What we need to learn now is to adapt. And climate change is not just our issue. It's an issue everywhere else in the world. We are heavily affected by that. We are a strong nation and we change and we adapt and we learn quickly. And, and it's not as if we have a choice. We don't. We have to. You've pointed out that there's a human-wildlife conflict. There's poor governance. There's climate change. There's these overly successful initiatives that have created problems in themselves. I'd like to hear about just some of the, the kinds of actions and solutions that you've supported through your work to combat what's happening right now. As I mentioned, unfortunately, part of our successes, or I will not actually call it successes, because in some ways I feel is what needs, it should be like that. This is a land where we need to have wildlife. We need to have people managing that wildlife. We need to have livestock. We need to have people living. But there should also be some balances around that. As a country, we had a lot of criticism in the way we, we do things. But for us, we, we get shocked because in the way that we have managed our resources, there has been some successes. 
our communities depend on, on wildlife and we hunt. And we have done that over years very sustainably. And even if we are doing that, there's still a lot of wildlife on the lands. I mean, we are being criticized, but I drove two weeks ago and I see lots of springboks, lots of oryxes, lots of kudus. We are not a nation that will finish it all up because we have learned to sustainably use our resources and share those landscapes. It's not perfect. And I will repeat, it's not perfect. We need to improve a lot. But we have been criticized for that. And especially your country is one of those countries that does not allow us to do what we want to do. Your policies can have a negative impact in terms of the way we look at wildlife and the way we manage wildlife. And I can understand because everybody in the world is very concerned through the experiences that they had. I'm sure a lot of the Britons would not like for us to make the same mistake that you guys made in getting rid of everything that you had a couple of hundreds years ago. And we are very mindful of that. But we are also mindful that if you don't allow communities and people to benefit and still managing those resources sustainably, we might be in the same position that you guys are at the moment. And so we are trying to avoid that. So creating policies that has a negative impact uh, on uh, things that already work can be something that can have a very detrimental effect on the conservation work that we are all doing. And, and I think that's something that has really concerned us, not just in Namibia, but in Southern Africa. And we tried to speak up about it. And maybe if we have solutions together, we can talk about it and make those programs much more stronger rather than criticizing something that you have never seen before, that you have never experienced, or that you just do because you think this is what I am and this is how things need to be done. For me and for everybody else that is in conservation in Southern Africa, in Namibia in particular, is that to save the elephant, to save the lion, the, to save the rhino, we need to be able to do what we think will work. And at the moment, what we do as a conservation strategy in the country, it works for us. The lot of work that is being done, saving species and making sure that we have the conservation and addressing some of the livelihoods that we have today is also because there has been so much assistance coming from the West in keeping the work going. And we are very thankful for that. And we continue to be thankful because if we did not have this assistance here and that assistance there, we could have possibly not be where we are. And we are really, really thankful for those right-minded like people that listen to us and they allow us to do what we do. The UK has been part of the eight organizations that has supported my country a lot around this issue. For me, it's just ironic when they come back and say, oh, you need to ban it. Uh -huh. I'm like, you just supported it and it was successful. Why are you now wanting to take away it again? But yes, there is so many people in the UK that support us and we really want to thank those people and we really appreciate and especially the communities. They normally remind me saying the reason why we are today is for those people. It's just because I have this opportunity to thank them as a platform. I would like to to thank them. It has to work for wildlife and it has to work for people. And I think there's a kind of a level of ignorance, I think even in the UK, people do not realize that at one time in history, we lived in a much, much wilder 
landscape and that we have lost so much of our, our wild places and wild wild animals. And it always is my bugbear. It's like, how can we travel around the world and say, Brazil, this is what you should be doing with the rainforest. Namibia, this is how you should sort of manage these conflict species uh, when we actually were not prepared to, to live alongside even the smallest, the dinkiest of predators in the UK. I think certainly a bit of CBNRM would, would work in communities in Scotland. So you seem like an incredibly optimistic person with your optimism all the way up to living what's your hope and what's your vision of the future in Namibia how do you see that human and wildlife landscape yeah the future looks bright to me I, I think we have come too far to turn around and say oh this is not working for us I think it is working with all those challenges that I have mentioned we always find a way in the world eh? to get around it. And I believe we will get around it. As a, as a nation, I think we always got around uh, certain situations. And I think also with having these good rains coming, we prayed and prayed and it, it, it happened because if it was another five or six years, I might not be as optimistic as I am now. But I think there was also a reason for, for it to happen. But I think we can get around it. I, I believe white life will come back. It will always go through this up and down. That is just part of a cycle that we need to go through. I believe that climate change will get worse. We need to get around it and try and live around it and see how resilient we can become as people. I think we need to save these habitats. For me, it's very important. And it's maybe a point that I did not make some emphasis on. For our wildlife to survive, we need to keep those rangelands open. We need to keep that space open for them to move. If they don't move around or they don't have grass or whatever they eat to have, then we have a problem. So those are the ones. And nowadays, because of the populations, it makes it also difficult. We need to have people and wildlife living together. The most challenging thing. So with assistance from anywhere and everywhere and anybody doesn't matter who you are we need to keep these areas open for our wildlife and not just our wildlife our trees everything you need to put the people in the center of everything you do i i cannot see that you take out the people and you think things will be there by themselves it will not happen so i think from a conservation point of view i'm very optimistic things will be fine if we just manage them well we have very good strategies and we listen to those ones that are at the core of making these decisions. Yeah, community has different tiers. It might start in a, a small village or indigenous community of 30, 40 people, but community is a global thing. And if we can work together as a global community and involving everyone, all of those communities, especially those in the ground, that's when great things can happen. Maxi, thank you so much. It's been enlightening inspiring and uplifting thank you so much gordon thank you thank you thank you so very much to maxi and lorna for talking to me i hope that this episode of beneath the beerbub has brought you some new insights into the unique challenges faced by communities who live amongst the magnificent wildlife they're also seeking to conserve it is so crucial 
to give voice to the hitherto marginalised experiences that are so vital in making sure we can enact meaningful conservation now and in the future. Supporting communities to build new economies and value around wildlife in circumstances where they're also under pressure is no small feat. But building dialogue and understanding the needs of people and livelihoods is key. What's more, Maxi's point about empowering communities and villages to build internal resilience against change will be ever more crucial to the health of our planet and its use of resources into the future. If you'd like to find out more about Naxo or learn about community-based natural resource management, you can find the links in the show notes or you can just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international projects. If you'd like to listen to our next episode, make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app. JAMA International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, and I strongly suggest you do, please do so with the hashtag beneath the Baobab on social media. And as you know, Baobab is spelled B-A-O-B-A-B. Positive dialogue and sharing ideas can happen anytime, any place, anywhere. So why don't you start a conversation with a friend, a family member, a neighbour or a complete stranger? I'm Gordon Buchanan and I hope you'll join me next time in Beneath the Beer Bar.